Welcome to the Transfer Window with me, Henry McRae, and podcast regulars Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. Regular listeners will know that this is normally the point where I witter on about all sorts of nonsense, letting you know what's coming up in the show while squeezing in some corny gags in the process. Well, today, fear not, because we are going to cut straight to the chase as we're breaking some very big news. Duncan reported yesterday... The Manchester United manager, Jose Mourinho, has been given a bumper budget of 90 million euros to spend in January. Today, he's going to tell us who their number one target is. And if that wasn't enough, Ian is then going to tell you which young European-based hotshot Chelsea are targeting in this coming window. So, with all that on the agenda, let us not waste any time on my silly intros. Let us get on with it, gents. Duncan, who did Manchester United have their eyes on? Manchester United have entered the pursuit of Juventus left-back Alexandro. This player that's well-known to the Transfer Window podcast. He's obviously a guy who's been linked with Chelsea all through the summer. Um, he's a player that Manchester City um, looked to sign as part of their um, historic attempt to spend more money on full-backs than than anyone's ever done. Um, eventually, they went for Benjamin Mendy instead. But Sandro um, is unhappy at Juventus. He is pushing to leave the club. Um, he is in the position of being regarded as the best left-back available in European football um, at present. It's a position which we've talked about several times is, is very difficult to fill at the moment. has become increasingly important to, um, to top-level football teams because fullbacks aren't just about defending these days. They, they're great contributors to the attack. Um, for Manchester United, it's been an obvious weakness um, throughout the whole time Mourinho's been at the club. Hasn't been able to change left-back. Would have done so in the summer if funds had been available and also if he'd been able to move uh, Luke Shaw out, but injury prevented him from doing that. After... Um, spending a significant amount of time pressing the board for funds to further reinforce the squad and pointing out that um, Manchester City would um, invest again in January and if Manchester United wanted to compete for the title and have a better chance in the Champions League, they needed to do the same. He's been given the green light for spending and the United are now exploring whether they can get Sandro out of the club. There, there will be obvious difficulties involved. You don't get players out of Juventus, um, particularly in mid-season, without uh, a careful strategy and probably a large transfer fee. But uh, they are at present leading the race for Alexandro. So, Duncan, <clears throat> I'm not sure how big a blow this would be to Chelsea or not if, if Sandro went to Manchester United. Only because, well, two things. One, the reason that Chelsea didn't sign him in the summer window this year was Juventus uh, just kept upping their price. Every time Chelsea made a bid, which started around the 42 million mark, uh, Juventus simply said, no, not enough, not enough. And they went up and up and up and up to the point where I think the last um, price they were quoted was around 72 or 73 million pounds 
for a left back, which would be by far uh, the most expensive defender ever purchased. And Mia Gavskaya, the um, de facto chief executive of Chelsea, decided that that was just ludicrous and they wouldn't buy him. Uh, of course, they pursued Leonardo Bonucci as well, and that didn't happen either. Juventus, I think, uh, are in a weaker position in terms of retaining players. The performances, uh, which have been uh, almost flawless for the last four seasons, <clears throat> have deteriorated this season. It's almost like the team, the players, the manager have all thought, well, we've taken this as far as we can, and there's nowhere else we can take it, um, having lost the Champions League final but won consecutive Scudettos. So I think um, Manchester United's interest in, in uh, Alexandro will have been <clears throat> twigged by a perceived willingness of Juventus to part with the player in order to reinvest and rebuild their squad. Interestingly, uh, Antonio Conte's uh, vision for um, for Sandro was not to play at left-back because Marcos Alonso, in my opinion, is currently the best left-back in, in Europe anyway. I say, I, I say that meaning playing in, in, a, in a three with uh, both full-backs pushed on, so three central defenders. I think Conte saw Sandro as the long-term replacement for Gary Cahill on the left of the back three, <clears throat> or indeed the short-term replacement for Gary Cahill, uh, whose season has not been great. So um, I just wonder if, um, if knowing that uh, United are in for Sandro, will Chelsea's interest be reignited? I'm not sure. Uh, I, don't, I think they, they don't really see him as a priority anymore. That, of course, would further boost United's chances of actually signing him in January. Well, I think I was, I was always greatly sceptical of whether um, Chelsea would be ever able to get that deal over the line in the summer, um, mainly because the information I was getting from Antonio Conte's friends was that they didn't expect that deal to go over the line. They felt that Chelsea were happy to be associated with a, a purchase, a, a prospective purchase of that scale and to be seen to be pursuing a player that Conte had identified as first choice for the position. But Conte, who obviously has no shortage of contacts at Juventus, given his career there, felt that there was a bid in place that was anywhere near the money um, Juventus were asking for him. Juventus were prepared to sell Sandro in the summer. Uh, and they were hopeful because they had Manchester City and Chelsea talking to them that they could get an extraordinary fee for them. And they were asking, um, I was told, upwards of 70 million euros as a, as a price, which you know is extraordinary for a fullback. So if it goes head, I can't see it going head to head. Although we've, you've seen in the papers discussion that Chelsea are back in for Sandro. Um, it makes very little sense for Chelsea trying to be buying a player that they a manager who they know is leaving at the end of the season um, wants doing that in January and spending that uh, scale of transfer fee on a fullback when, you know, as, as we know, looking at Chelsea's spending over the last several seasons, they aren't actually great net spenders in the transfer market anymore. They're quite careful with where they allocate their money and they ensure that they get the majority of the money they spend back in from other sources. So, Duncan, you said uh, you, you did a story yesterday um, on a on a digital platform saying that United have been uh, given the green light. Uh, Mourinho's got 90 million euros to spend in the January window. How much of that do you think it will take to prize Alexandro or Juventus? Look, it's one of those fluid things. Um, obviously, United want the player to push for the move. 
the harder he pushes for the move, um, the more they can get the price down. Uh, the information I have from the Juventus end is that they have told um, Allegri that they will not allow Alexandro to go in this window unless they get made a crazy offer for him. Now, what that scope, the scope of the crazy offer is for Juventus at this point, and I think Ian's analysis is is very valid here in that Juventus are struggling. Um, Alexandro, who had been um, you know, a, a regular Juve watcher, described to me um, this morning, said he's been impeccable in his career for Juventus up until this season, has declined his performance in the way that often happens with a player who who is unhappy with his financial terms and sees better offers elsewhere. So Ian's analysis that Juventus might decide that this is a point of time in which they can cash in makes sense. But having said that, January is a difficult time to extract players from clubs. It doesn't go down well with fans. So, um, yeah, you could see half of that budget, which is, you know, I've told us in the region of 90 million euros uh, going for them. And it, 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 you know, it depends how hard United are prepared to press for a, a position which is obviously very, very important to them mid-season. I think the other thing you have to think about there in terms of, we've mentioned this a couple of times on the transfer window, um, <clears throat> is the fact that he'll be Champions League Cup tied. Um, but there's yeah. one dispensation available to each Champions League club who have made the knockout stages in the January window. So if United have 90 million euros to spend, then the whichever player, players, plural, they buy, they have to be... Uh, obviously careful about which one they um, admit to the Champions League squad for the knockout stages. And given um, that sum, which is very, very generous for a January window, I have to say, <clears throat> and points to um, a decision by United's administrators to invest in Mourinho's judgment, um, but also because they, they possibly smell one of the big two trophies. Uh, if they're going to augment a squad in January where we all uh, know from experience that prices are inflated, transfers are much harder to get over the line um, because it's mid-season, players generally don't want to move or, or jump ship mid-season. Um, so to allocate substantial funds um, in the January window says a lot about uh, what Manchester United believe is possible still this season, despite being eight points behind Manchester City in the Premier League going into this Sunday's derby match. But they've had, a, a, obviously, a, a fairly um, smooth passage into Champions League knockout stages. Um, so, I'm impressed by United's ambition to put that kind of money out there for our January window. And in doing but so... I, how, much, how much do we think they're going to spend? On, I mean, you said in your piece that they are looking for a left-back, a centre-mid and a winger. Do we expect them to get more than one in, in January or, or is this a, a one player, you know, put, put, the priority clearly think, seems to be the left back? Yeah, like the, the, those are three positions that Mourinho feels have to be improved in the squad, uh, either this window or the next window. Um, as I say, well, we know he would have done uh, the winger in the summer window if it had been possible to do that. And as I said, he would have done fullback as well in the in the summer window if it had been possible to do that. Very hard to see them getting all three 
in this window. Uh, my information is he would be happy to get two uh, of those positions filled in January if he can. Um, and it's just it's just the complexities of the January market again. We, we should we should chaps we should bear in mind uh, one very significant factor different in this January window than 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 most others, and that is it's World Cup year. And I can see not right before me because I'd be obviously hallucinating uh, a raft of international players out there who currently aren't getting first team football. I'm thinking Julian Traxler and Angel Di Maria. At Paris Saint-Germain. Both could be Manchester United players on loan for six months in January in order to get a place in the World Cup squad. That I don't see that as... I think that there's potential in this January window for loan moves or, or permanent transfers, which there wouldn't be in other January windows because of the World Cup factor, and we shouldn't rule that out. That's something I think we'll probably talk in detail about in the coming weeks as we build up to the opening of the window and indeed the window itself. But you know, I think loan moves, especially for international players not currently getting game time, are going to be big this January window. Yeah, and look, you want players who want to move. So obviously another option for Manchester United at left back is a player that's been talked about a lot. It's Danny Rose. Danny Rose has signalled his desire to leave um, Tottenham very clearly. He has also stated he wants to live in the north of England, very clearly. He's been marginalised, albeit coming back from, um, I think, two operations in the space of uh, nine months, it would be. He's been marginalised by Maurizio Pochettino, uh, questions over whether he's being punished by the club for um, and not getting a game, in addition to the, the fines that were imposed on him for the interviews, the interview he gave. Uh, where he expressed his, his desire to, to get a significant pay rise and move elsewhere. So Danny Rose would happily go to Manchester United if that offer was made to him and, and is obviously an, an option if they decide to go down that route in January because you're looking there at a player who Tottenham Hotspur will not sell cheaply but are considering selling now. Well, they, they certainly won't send him on loan, Duncan. I know you're not suggesting that, but... What we know about Daniel Levy is he will not send um, a potential asset for his own team out on loan to a rival um, to benefit them. Even for five months, it would have to be a permanent sale. And also, he doesn't sell cheaply. So of that €90 million Euros kitty, Daniel Rose, you're looking at forty five, fifty million pounds First thing that Daniel Levy will say is, well, yeah, your city rivals paid £50 million for Kyle Walker, so let's make that the starting point. United will say, well, he's not on the same... Um, sort of league as, as Walker at the moment, having come back from injury, so that their price will start at thirty, and so the haggle will will begin. Um, so I think, yeah, it's it's Rose was definitely someone who they, they've been looking at and would and, and covet, but I, I think that one will be a difficult transfer to get over the line in January. Just to finish up on United and fullbacks, obviously, um, Luke Shaw made a rare appearance uh, during the week and, and looked good initially, but then you could probably fault for the uh, for the goal they conceded. Is Can we see Shaw getting moved on in January? Is there likely to be movement out as well as in? I think well, it, it, they, would, they, would, they would love to have movement out. You know, as, as, as I said on, on this, this programme several times, it's very, very hard to get players out of Manchester United. And one of the difficult parts of Jose Mourinho's rebuild has been shifting out players who are not good enough 
for the quality of squad required at Manchester United and are on too high wages for their ability. Um, and, it, and it's been tough, you know, it, it, it's a drip drab process of getting them out. With Shaw, they at least have a situation now where the player and the people around the player are actively marketing him. I think you, you might have seen a report um, last week in which Luke Shaw was described as being one of, if not the fittest player at Manchester United. Um, and uh, I don't think it's a stretch of the imagination to see that as part of a marketing campaign. It was, it was certainly met with guffaws um, by uh, senior staff at Carrington when uh, they read the story. So Shaw knows, and the people around Shaw know that he faces uh, probably an impossible task to resurrect his career at Manchester United, therefore needs a move. So this could be the time to get him out because they're not, he, he's fit, he can pass a medical, which he couldn't do in the summer. They're not um, pushing against a, a brick wall in the sense the player will resist a move now. Um, I, I think you're right, he, he looked good coming forward. Um, in the Champions League game, but defensively, very bad mistake for, for the CSKA goal, which is kind of a characterisation of, of, of his career at Manchester United. It's, it, he doesn't look to have the tactical intelligence, a footballer for a top English club, and certainly not a defender for a Jose Mourinho side where tactical intelligence is, is fundamental to, to what the manager wants. What his, his best chance of getting out, Henry, uh, I think maybe, and it's a big maybe, is uh, the future of Ryan Bertrand at Southampton, um, wanted by Manchester City, who will very probably make a bid for him in January. Of course, that would leave a vacancy at Luke Shaw's old club, Southampton. The difficulty there, of course, would be um, his wages at Manchester United, although uh, Manchester United would be um, obliged to pay up his contract as he's not asked for a transfer so he would leave with a very tidy uh, sum of money in his bank account take a lower wage at Southampton and try and rebuild his career back where it started so that's the possibility for Shaw um, I, I think I, I know for a fact that Southampton have actually inquired uh, subtly about the possibility of Shaw returning and have been given positive feedback on that uh, possibility Um so maybe look out for that one in January. But of course, that's part of the merry-go-round. It all depends on Ryan Bertrand's future. OK, Ian, you've got another uh, story, obviously, to look out for in January. And you have got a name for Chelsea's prime target <coughs> in the in the window. Can you? Can yeah, you... this is, it's Henry. This is this when you uh, reflect <clears throat> slightly on this, this is not, not a, someone who's, who's very well known, I think, to football fans in this country. But Leon Bailey Butler, uh, a Jamaican international winger who currently plays for Bayer Leverkusen in the Bundesliga, very, very talented player, um, lightning, lightning quick. He is one of the fastest players in European football right now. My son, who plays the FIFA games, tells me that uh, if you put Leon Bailey Butler in your team, then you will get about 25 goals a season from him. He's, he's, he's turnover, in, in, not in FIFA uh, <laughs> video games, isn't quite as impressive. But his, his skill on the ball, his dribbling and say his pace um, are, are huge, huge attractions to any club. And in fact, uh, our old uh, transfer window uh, friend, Graham Hunter, 
um, on this uh, on the show two or three weeks ago, mentioned that Barcelona have been scouting him uh, as well. So my information is that Chelsea have watched him on at least three occasions, maybe even five this season. Um, and indeed, it transpires they also watched him when he played for Genk in the Belgian League last year. So he's a player well known to the scouting department at Chelsea. He fits that profile of Chelsea buying young, fit, relatively less well-known players. He's 20 years old at a reasonably cheaper price. Uh, we're under the radar. Uh, I'm not saying Butler will be uh, cheaper. I think you're probably around the 20 million mark, maybe slightly less. But again, buying potential, buying young, seeing if it works. Uh, and in the case of Aiden Hazard, Thibaut Courtois, it will certainly work. Um, and if it doesn't, then you sell on for a bigger price. And then hence, as Duncan referred to earlier, Chelsea's transfer policy in terms of net spend has been not to make a huge outlay in any particular window. Indeed, they've averaged around £30 million net spend in the past three seasons. So, uh, Bailey Butler is absolutely on the radar. Um, he is considering his career at Bayer, um, has interest from other clubs, as we mentioned, Barcelona. But um, someone who Chelsea are certainly very, very serious about uh, obtaining in the January window. And how likely are Leverkusen to, to let him go in, in mid-season? Well, I don't think Leverkusen will have a choice. If if a Chelsea or Barcelona make a bid for the player, he will want to leave. Um, he's at that stage in his career where it's full. It's all about potential and promise. It's not about delivery um, just yet. He will recognise that if he isn't allowed to leave for a big club like the two I've mentioned in this January window, then it may be the case that his time for those clubs has come and gone at the tender age of 20. Therefore, you'd have to anticipate that, A, he currently earns around €8,000 per week at Bar Leverkusen. He can be sure that he'll be on substantially more. In fact, his salary will be trebled, if not quadrupled, uh, if he comes to Chelsea. But, but how much is potential cost in uh, January in this day what's and say, I think it'll be between 15 and £20 million, pounds, Henry. For, for, for Bailey Butler. I think it'd be cheaper if you left it until the summer. But as I said, Chelsea have this transfer policy of buying potential and buying young and then knowing that their investment will at least be paid back if not um, increased uh, after two or three years uh, if he doesn't make it in the first team at Chelsea. So it's um, it makes sense for Chelsea. It's as it fits their uh, transfer policy. That's something we'll be hearing a lot about in the coming weeks. Chelsea certainly love to scout players and recruit players who've, who've, who've developed in the Belgian leagues, um, partly because of Pete de Visser's um, uh, persistent influence as an advisor to Roman Abramovich. What, what interests me about this is, uh, is there a possibility in that, that Chelsea would uh, sign him and offer a loan back deal uh, to Leverkusen? Absolutely. Uh, and they've done that before, Duncan, as you know. It's, it's, it's a, a way that they can make the deal sweeter for the selling club. Um, so that's a possibility. Obviously, uh, his profile um, at the moment does not fit Chelsea's first eleven. So uh, I would say, well, why not? Um, they've loaned lots of players in, into the Bundesliga. Uh, in fact, I think they've currently got three on loan in the Bundesliga uh, anyway. So it's a, it's, it's a way of making sure they, they, they get the player's signature but then, you know, they can also um, sweeten the deal for Leverkusen and then they'll assess him in pre-season next summer um, when the new manager comes in and see if he, he has progressed enough to, to feature in a 25-man named squad. OK, well, you heard them here first. 
Alexandro at United and Leon Bailey Butler to Chelsea. So let's fingers crossed they happen and uh, we can uh, claim. Thanks for your confidence there, Henry. <laughs> well, we know we know <laughs> these we know these things can change um, uh, very quickly uh, in the in the transfer business and uh, sometimes transfer stories which have got um, real depth and our genuine tales end up not coming to pass. Anyway, we've got a big game coming up this weekend. Um, you know, it's in some ways it could be described as a, you know, a title decider because if United uh, fail to beat Manchester City, then that's one of the, the big opportunities to make up lost ground. Duncan, how you, how, what do you think about the game this Sunday and how do you think it'll go? Um, I think it's yeah, it's a fascinating game. Um, can't wait to to see how the two managers approach it and and how how the game pans out. Um, I think well, I wrote a piece this week talking about how United are clearly a handicap going into the the match because they're without Pogba, um, who uh, was a, a huge factor in their in their win at Arsenal at the weekend and. I don't think you have to be a footballing genius to see um, how he has been the spark, the creative spark in midfield that, that turns the team into uh, regular winners. Um, so not having Pogba greatly reduces their options for this game. They've also got um, Eric Bailly out struggling with injury. Nemanja Matic, Mourinho says, will play despite carrying an injury. Marouan Fellaini might uh, make it back, but again, is um, is not a hundred percent. So all of these things reduce United's options going into the the game. Um, I think Manchester City are in a very interesting place at the moment. Um, obviously, they lost last night for the first time this season. Um, they put out essentially a reserve side, but did risk some of their their, their first team players in a game that was meaningless beyond um, quite Pep Guardiola's attempts to help his mate uh, Maurizio Sarri out and try and get Napoli through to the next round and um, the, the additional money that's involved in winning a, a every Champions League group tie. Um, I know a friend, a Manchester City uh, fan, who was uh, extremely perplexed when she saw the they were naming to take out to Ukraine and it felt that they should have left basically the entire first team at home to prepare for the derby. Um, but more interesting is where they've got to in terms of performances in the league in that all of the last three games they've um, they've come close to dropping points. All of them they've faced a, a defensive structure that they're, they're struggling to 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 solve the problems of they're being set new problems with, with the deep defending and with um, with uh, space being denied to their creative players to make passes. Um, Pep Guardiola's you can see his frustration. We saw it when he when he had a go at Nathan Redmond on the pitch. We see it when he keeps on saying talking about how teams make it very difficult for them to play and how he'd prefer them to to come at them. Um, and I think. Guardiola is very good at coming up with strategical changes and there was one in midweek which allowed them to, to get back 
um, from West uh, from being behind at West Ham United, they pulled the Brian he pulled the Brian back into a holding midfield position to give him the space to make his passes, and it worked. Mourinho will obviously have seen that, and I, I would expect him to come up with a solution to limit the space to De Bruyne as much as possible on Sunday. But will Guardiola have another system in mind, knowing that Mourinho will have looked at these recent performances, will emulate the defensive systems used by um, the opposition against Man City and add another uh, level to it? That, that's what I, I find fascinating to watch from the tactical side of this game. I think also... Um... Dungy mentioned the three <clears throat> matches uh, previous to this one that City have played, and they won by only one goal. Each time the goal came late in the game, they won 2-1. Um, last weekend, they went behind um, to West Ham, which was a big shock for everyone, um, I think, given the West Ham have played this season. Speaking to players who played in the Premier League, um, they will tell you that playing in games like those three are both mentally and physically exhausting because not only are you running yourself into the ground trying to find a way through uh, or to move that park bus, but mentally the frustration builds and builds. And even when you have a, the, the release of that frustration when the winning goal goes in, that too is emotionally, mentally tiring. And so I think Manchester City coming into this game will not be at the same fitness levels that they've been uh, so far in Premier League, uh, despite... Um, the raft of changes that Guardiola um, executed in the final Champions League match uh, midweek. Uh, I do think that um, he, Guardiola will be looking at this game as one he doesn't have to win. Uh, he might tell you otherwise, but I firmly believe that he'll think, well, we're going to Old Trafford. We're eight points ahead. If we come out with a draw, I'm happy with that. Let United bring take the game to us and we will sit back and we'll hit on the counter, which is not the way City play. City always play in the front foot. So I think strategically, Guardiola will, be, will set his team up differently at Old Trafford and um, and basically invite United to come at him, um, defend in numbers and then play with their pace on the break. I do think that um, the onus will be on Manchester United and Jose Mourinho in a way that uh, he was criticised for, for not doing at Anfield earlier in the season. I playing to win the game instead playing to draw um, but more importantly as I said that gap if United are to have a realistic chance of chasing City down they have to take three points but we know historically that Jose Mourinho is not going to come out all cavalier and um, and try and win the game 3-0 on the front foot uh, instead he will do exactly what Guardiola is probably trying to do and that is play on the break um, and and sit and, and absorb any Manchester City pressure so I suspect we'll see a low-scoring game dominated by midfield uh, and won or not by a goal. But I suspect a draw will be, the, will be the result. One other thing I'd like to say is that Jose Mourinho, as we know, is no friend of referees. But Michael Oliver, the man in the middle um, this coming Sunday, who is widely regarded as a very, very good referee, uh, albeit despite his years being one of the youngest, um, he has a bit of a history. Um, not just with Mourinho, but with Manchester United. And friends of Jose Mourinho, who are not referees, will tell you and point out that he sent Andrew Herrera off in the FA Cup quarter-final last season. He awarded penalties in each of three games that uh, Manchester United lost uh, against Watford, Everton and Liverpool last season. Uh, so, again, not Mourinho's favourite referee for that. And, of course, um, he didn't or failed to give what looked like a very good shout for a penalty on Marcus Ratchford 
in the derby last year when um, De Michaelis brought him down at last man. So, um, again, expect Mourinho's press conference uh, on Friday. I think uh, if someone asks him about Mr Michael Oliver, he'll be very, very lovely and courteous about him. But at the same time, there'll be a little dig there somewhere. So watch out for that. Well, you're talking about United's and Mourinho's teams not coming out in an attacking sense in these big games. But obviously, last uh, Sunday was, or, or Saturday, should I say, was um, a different type of game for uh, United and uh, one of their top of the table rivals in Arsenal. Um, one of the most exciting games of the season, if not the most exciting. United 2-0 up within 10 minutes. Is that a signal of a different approach that we can expect in this week, this weekend, or what? What the hell was going on there? I think I, I think I think Mourinho. I think it's a, it's an odd characterization that he always goes into these big games defensively. I think frequently he starts the game on the front foot. He he, he makes an attempt to score rapidly because he knows that if he gets ahead in those matches, that he, his team almost always has the best defence. And if he gets ahead, then the other team have got to come to him and he, and he fancies his chances of, of taking more goals on the counter-attack or at set pieces. So I think if you look at most of the games that they've played this season, including uh, the, the match at Anfield, they, they were on the front foot to start with and then went backwards um, if, if, the, if he felt the game required a more defensive caution. So it wouldn't surprise me to see them go at Manchester City from kickoff, particularly um, given that they have such weaknesses at set-piece defending. I mean, the, one of the marked things, Man City haven't conceded many goals from set-pieces this season, but in these last three Premier League games, ball after ball has gone into the six-yard box and been picked up by opponents. They could have conceded at least three, perhaps four goals in those three games alone um, from basically three chances handed to players uh, inside the six-yard box. So the, you've no, I've no doubt that Mourinho will be targeting that as a weakness, So, which then it makes sense to go at them from the start, try and score quickly or score from a set piece and say, then you come to us and we will... Um, apply our version of the of the tactics we've seen in, in recent weeks to stop what has been pretty much the only way Manchester City have played this season and I think is a big part of Guardiola's frustration is that he got the players particularly in that game away at Chelsea got the players believing that they could uh, dominate possession and control the ball in the opposition half against stronger opponents and win a match. And mentally, that that has been very important to the team, and they kind of flown on a on a, a wave of confidence and, and absolute quality of implementation since then. But now there there is a degree of doubt emerging within the squad in that they've played supposedly much weaker opponents and struggled in all of those games. As Ian says, it's very tiring. The way Guardiola sets his team up to play is tiring. He, he demands a lot of running from his players. And it, it's no coincidence that um, that Kevin De Bruyne did not play in Ukraine after cleaning his yellow card in the in the previous uh, Champions League tie and that David Silva was um, absent with, a, with an injury that when Pep Guardiola was questioned about, um, uh, was asked what part of his body was injured, uh, uh, replied sorry and started laughing. So um, uh, there's no real question why David Silva didn't the Ukraine because he wants those two players who are so important to his system to have as much energy in their legs for Sunday as possible. Um, 
in, in reference to <clears throat> how do you solve a problem like Paul Pogba uh, in midfield, uh, this is, again, this is this is not something that I'm, I'm putting out as information, but it's something which I think would be a good talking point. I would love to see him play Zlatan alongside Nemanja Matic in midfield because that guy can hit a pass, he can take the ball, he can take control of possession and he can he can pick people out, um, get in, put balls in behind, round a corner. He could be he could solve that creative uh, uh, miss that, that Paul Pogba represents and also allows uh, Romelu Lukaku to play up front unhindered by uh, uh, Zlatan's shadow. Uh, He's not very it, good at running, though, is he? Yeah, you don't. You don't have to be good at running when you've got a football brain like him. Well, yeah. you do in the middle of the park against Manchester no, City. No, no Matic. Matic can take care of that. Um, not all well, on I'm his not, own. I would. Well, I'm not saying. I'm not saying this, <laughs> I can't see Latin in the middle of the midfield for United. Uh, Henry, I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm just saying that if, like, Mourinho won't take that chance. I know he's not going to do it. But if I was being, if I if I was a coach and I wanted to surprise Manchester City uh, and and re sort of state. Um, my the creative heart of my midfield, I would give it a go for the first half hour and see what see if it works. It's not going to happen because Mourinho always errs on the side of caution in these things. Um, but I think Zlatan would absolutely relish that as well. If he, you told him, I think uh, play. it's an idea. It's not without merit. If you look at Ibrahimovic, certainly the range of passing and and intelligence, he he can hit those balls that Paul Pogba hits. <laughs> which, well, no, you can. You can. He can, he can play that. He's a fantastic footballer, absolutely. But in the Premier League, in the middle of midfield, you kind of need to be mobile. He also, if you watch him, if you watch him in the games where United have had to play defensively, he's not. He's a guy who contributes. He will come back. He will do the running. He will make tackles. He will do uh, defensive work in the box. He doesn't have speed for sure. He doesn't have. Uh, sprint pace over the ground. The, you know, if you were talking about Zlatan from last year when he was at the peak of fitness, i.e., not coming back from an ACL uh, and a PCL surgery, I, I think he would be capable of doing that in in certain games. Certain games, um, yeah, against now, Manchester City, I think. Uh, well, well as, it, it, Manchester City is not. It's not I, a heavyweight I, midfield, is it? I hope. Well, no, but it's extremely it's mobile. Um, in Zlatan, in Zlatan, I expect that Zlatan to be the guy to shut down uh, Kevin De Bruyne and, and he's uh, runs for the middle of the park and the ball getting caught back to, to the edge of the box, then he's not the guy. Maybe Matic is, but um, I think they'll need more than, more than, uh, than just um, Matic. Henry, let me remind you of Zlatan's famous words. <laughs> what Messi can do with a ball, I can do with an orange. I love Zlatan. And... Uh, Never let it be said that I would pick Maro and Fellini in a team before someone with Zlatan Ibrahimovic's skills. But um, well, I certainly hope, it, I hope Josie Mourinho borders <laughs> on, uh, on sanity um, rather than on, on safety and, uh, and picks a midfielder in the midfield um, for this Sunday's game. Well, everyone, everyone, <laughs> listen, everyone out there, especially Manchester United fans listening to this podcast, Get in touch. Tell us what you think. Zlatan in midfield. Yeah, it's City. a it's a talker. It's tell a us, talker. Tell us, tell us what you think. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, folks, tell us what you want us to talk about, if uh, if anything at all, because um, you know we do these podcasts every week, and you are more than welcome to uh, drop the guys on Twitter a line, as as many of you do, and uh, 
maybe suggest some topics that you'd be interested in hearing them talk about. Obviously, we you've discussed the Paul Pogba absence. Um, what did we think of that red card? Uh, was it justified? I mean, the certainly the consequence of the action was that you know it was a uh, dangerous to Bellerin's uh, fitness and safety. Um, but it was quite a strange uh, sequence of events that led up to it. He was in a very strange position, and I, you know, you would have to question whether there was any malicious intent on the part of Paul Pogba. Well, look, the, the intent is irrelevant by the rules, and um, it, that has been taken out of the rules. It's, what, it's whether you endanger a player. Sure. And I think, I think it's, a fascin- it's a fascinating tackle because it really has split opinion. I think the majority of people think it was correct, it was a red card. However, and, and I think every referee I've seen talk about it has said it was a red card. Uh, don't think there was intent, but he endangered uh, the opponent, therefore he had to go. But if you look at professionals, other professionals and ex-professionals, that's where you get the kind of uh, statement that you just made there, Henry, that what was Bellerin doing with his challenge? So if you look at that, that incident back, Paul Pogba takes the ball in midfield, he runs it forward, he, the ball is ahead of him, so he has to catch it, and it's going towards Bellerin. Bellerin doesn't make a tackle. He goes down on the ground like a, a, a cricketer, you know, making a, a long stop with his leg. And, and the ball bounces off his knee, comes a couple of centimetres back, and then it goes to Pogba, who is, who is running in with the intention of lifting it over Bellerin, which he does successfully, and then lands on Bellerin's leg in a way that has been described as endangering him, and certainly did endanger him. But the question is, what does Pogba do there? I, I think the parallel here is if you have um, a striker in, on the penalty spot about to hit a half volley, and the, center, the central defender um, challenging him decides to try and head that ball away rather than kick it away. And the striker gets the ball and then contacts the defender on, on the head. So the striker has endangered the defender. So you could say he's endangered an opponent, he has to go off. But can you see a referee sending a striker off in that situation where the ball is there for him to take. He takes it in, the, in a natural fashion, trying, trying to score a goal. And then the defender does something so bizarre that he places his head in front of him and, and gets kicked. And I think, I think that's what Bellerin's done there. And I described it on, on Twitter in that way. Um, you could say that the reckless was also from Bellerin. The challenge that endangered a player was also from Bellerin because what Bellerin did was an unnatural movement for a defender. How often do you see a defender do that, particularly in, a, in what was clearly a 50-50 challenge? So I, I come down on the side of uh, the ex-pros who, who, whose argument is, what does Pogba do there? And, you know, this is a guy that I think is the first red card he's had in four years. And, and I know that Pogba post-match made exactly the same um, explanation of what happened to Thierry Henry when he was asked by Henry what, what happened in that incident. It was, you know, Bellerin did that, what, what can I do? If you take it from the referee's point of view, um, he's got that one, two second to make the decision and, and what, on what he sees. And what he unfortunately mm-hmm. cannot or isn't capable of doing is actually um, 
I guess, reflecting on what you, the, the point you've just made, as in what was Bellerin doing in the first place, what he sees is yeah. <clears throat> a player's studs go into, <clears throat> excuse me, another player's um, uh, ligaments between his uh, his thigh and his, his calf and thinks, well, that's endangering an opponent. Uh, if I don't send them off, then I'm going to get absolutely slaughtered for this because it makes me look like I've favoured Manchester United in a situation where, in a big game where there's a clear red card offence. So he does, he, I guess he takes the safety option, which is the one which everyone saw at the time, and that he produces the red card. I think there is merit to arguing subsequently uh, the way in which you have um, about the Bellerin situation. But the fact that United did not appeal the red card where, you know, with Pogba's explanation, as, you, as you've described it as well, probably tells you that, how, how much they felt that would have been a worthwhile um, exercise because it, quite clearly they didn't believe that it, it was going to be rescinded or even downgraded. So um, while I'm sympathetic with Pogba on this one um, in terms of you know, what went on with Bellerin's challenge, I do think that the, the laws were enforced in the right way by the referee. If I take you to a different um, example, um, but a similar, very similar um, situation uh, in the Brighton versus Newcastle game at the Amex on uh, match day three of the Premier League, um, Tom Hamid played the ball past uh, Newcastle's DeAndre Yedlin, and in the same motion, his foot came down on his on his calf in a similar way because Yedlin had come in to tackle him uh, in a way which was to take the ball, but, but Hamid got the ball past him. Now, retrospectively, he was given a three-match ban for that by the FA's disciplinary panel uh, because the referee didn't see it. I think the referee in the Arsenal-Manchester United game was thinking, I've clearly seen this, I've got to act on it, because if I don't, you've got a three-match ban anyway from the panel. But I'm sure that wasn't in his mind at the time, as I said. I think those, that one, two-second um, avenue of uh, that he had to decide made him think, well, I'm definitely going to have to get the red card out here. Yeah, look, at I... I should make it clear, this is not a criticism of Andrew Mariner. In fact, uh, when I co initially commented on it, I said presumably he didn't see um, that Pogba had, had taken the ball. Um, and if you watch the camera angle, which gives the best approximation of what Mariner sees, you, you'll, you can see that Aaron Ramsey runs between Pogba and Mariner as Pogba is taking the ball. So it's quite possible that uh, Mariner didn't actually see uh, the interaction between the players over the ball. He definitely would have seen um, Pogba coming down in his legs. So I think from Mariner's point of view, he gave the, the, the correct decision in that it, it's endangering opponent and, it's, um, and, it can, and you send them off. In terms of Manchester United not appealing, you shouldn't interpret the decision not to appeal as acceptance that they thought the decision was correct. If you look at the history of... Um, appeals on red cards since uh, the FA changed the regulations on that, I think in 2015. Very few examples where uh, a club has successfully had a, a three-match ban or, or other um, suspension rescinded because uh, the, the burden of proof is extremely high. Essentially, you have to get the referee to admit he made a mistake and then you've got a chance of having it rescinded. Manchester United's calculation was, if we appeal this, we will not win it. We might get an extra match ban uh, if it's considered a frivolous appeal. And the FA are also looking at, at Pogba uh, supposedly sarcastically applauding the, the referee as he, he went off the pitch. Apparently he was applauding Koscielny for uh, his, his France international teammate for demanding that he be sent off. But that was Manchester United's calculation was we can't win this one. So we're just going to have to 
accept it, accept the ban in the sense that we're going to have to suck it up and get on with it, um, we don't think it's right. But there's nothing we can do about it. Should, should we ask the question as well, um, gents, that how can a club like Manchester United be so reliant on one player for creative spark in midfield? I'm not saying that Pogba isn't worth his £89 million and his uh, obviously his reputation as one of the best in, in the world. He certainly is, but how can they be at a point in their history where they don't have someone to come in and replace him? There's not an obvious replacement. I mean, obviously, there's been misfortune over Michael Carrick, but the club obviously knew about the condition of Carrick and that he was unlikely to play, um, certainly in the first half of the season. So not just recruiting someone to replace Carrick, but someone to to actually come in in situations like these where, where Pogba's not available. Well, look, look, the Carrick situation developed during the season, so the club weren't aware of that at the point where they could do something about it in the transfer market. They also allowed um, uh, and, uh, and Pereira to leave uh, against Mourinho's wishes, and Pereira is obviously not the same calibre of player as Pogba. He's a young young talent who could, could develop into a, a Premier League a creative midfielder, but he is a player who... The strength of his game is, is creativity and passing. So being an option in those circumstances. I think more of a problem for him is um, alternative ways to attack. So the reason Mourinho wants a winger is that he wants a, a genuine winger, not someone like Rashford or Martial, who can play extremely effectively coming off the touchline and setting up his, in what is formerly a winger's position. But both of those players want to go inside. They're, they're naturally strikers rather than wingers. So he doesn't have a natural winger um, to use as, as an alternative source of creativity. And obviously left back as well, full backs are, are sources of creativity in, in the modern game. And you know, for all the quality of Ashley Young's play coming into the side, and the, he has contributed to a lot of goals recently, that we're not talking one of the top full backs in the world. So there, there are limitations around the squad uh, in terms of um, not having as many creative players, but on that on that note, Henrik Mkhitaryan is uh, conspicuous by his absence. wasn't even on a bench uh, in, during the, uh, in the Champions League game. Yeah, well, there you've got a creative central player, passing player. Not not a guy again. Not a guy who wants to play from the wings. But yes, you, you have a a passer, a chance creator there who's out because um, of his form and his state of mind. That's why that's why he's rested, and that's that has been a problem with Mkhitaryan. Um, during his time at Manchester United, he's he's a, something of a of a flaky, unpredictable character, and I think uh, I think Mourinho once said in an interview when asked what his greatest weakness was, and he said something along the lines of um, not being able to manage well uh, mentally weaker players. And I think we have a, a bit of a an example of those problems with the with the Mkhitaryan. Um, situation at Manchester United at the moment. Which brings us back to Zlatan in midfield. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, he'd certainly have the I'm, confidence I'm, there. I'm going to start the Zlatan for midfield campaign. Is Get a t-shirt, t-shirt. bumper sticker. And, uh, excuse me, these days we do it as a hashtag, Henry. Okay, we've got to go on to the quickfire round. And uh, this week, uh, thought we could look at the Champions League now that we know the last 16, prior to the draw, of course. But... 
we do have the five English teams all the way through to the last 16 for the first time, which is, you know, um, a great uh, indication of how strong the league is at the moment. Um, but how far will all five teams go? So how about I shout out the name of a team, gents, and uh, you tell me how far you think they'll go in the competition. Ian, we'll start with you and we'll go to Manchester United. Semi-finals, I think, Henry. Uh, I think they've uh, been very impressive in, in the Champions League so far. Obviously, this, we're talking this before the draw, and that's going to be the biggest influence on this, but um, <clears throat> I think they've got the, the players, the talent, and with a bit of momentum, um, I think they could get to the last four. Tottenham Hotspur. Uh, Tottenham are interesting. Obviously, the draw is very important, but look, Tottenham, there's an argument that Tottenham now concentrate in the Champions League over the league. I don't think that argument is correct because they need to qualify again for um, next season's Champions League through the Premier League. But I can see them getting through one more round and then being eliminated. Manchester City. They have the potential, uh, clearly, the way they're playing to go all the way, Henry, but I, I don't think they will. I think Guardiola will prioritise um, the title and therefore when we get to springtime, um, he will put all his eggs into winning the Premier League. He knows that if he doesn't win one of those two trophies, i.e. Champions League or Premier League, uh, his tenure so far will be deemed a, a huge failure. Uh, he's already got the advantage in the Premier League of an eight-point uh, gap, um, and I can see them, depending you know who they draw exactly again, but you know going through the round of 16 in the quarterfinals. But once those ties come up um, in the quarterfinals, uh, there'll be important games to win in the, Prem in the Premier League to get the title, and therefore I think they will focus on them and therefore go out of the quarter-final stage. Duncan, Chelsea. Yeah, look, I think Chelsea are, are really good candidates for this because they've managed to sort out their Premier League form to the stage where they're quite comfortable of qualifying for next year's competition. Um, they're not going to win the Premier League. Antonio Conte absolutely wants to win the Champions League beyond all else. This is his last chance of doing it at Chelsea. I can see him focusing all resources upon trying to achieve that. And, you know, the way he sets teams up, they are, they're difficult for any team to beat because they play extremely defensively off the ball and they hit quick counter-attacks. And the way they're playing now with Morata and Hazard, just as two to make them more dangerous than they were last season when they only when they had three um, forward going players. So okay. semi final. Okay, and then finally Liverpool. Um, I, I, Liverpool, you need to um, to win the Champions League. You need to have a half decent defence, and Liverpool are short of half decent in defence. Um, so I don't think uh, they'll win this year. The exception to this rule, of course, was Istanbul in 2005, where they also didn't have a decent defence, but still managed to come through uh, and win that on penalties. I would say um, quarter-final for Liverpool. Uh, I think that's, that's uh, us for today, unless you've got any other business. Uh, moving swiftly on before you do, my thanks go to Duncan and Ian, as always. Excellent stuff and brilliant exclusive news stories at the top. Hope you enjoyed that, folks. We'll be back uh, soon. We've got a bunch of big plans for the January window and the build-up over the festive period. So stick with us and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks.